you're getting, giving your offering or filling out a card or grabbing coffee, just make your way in as soon as you can. But for the rest of us, it is time to start. You are a good-looking crowd of people here this morning. I just want to acknowledge you for your handsome and beauty, beautiness that's going on around here. Lots of challenges. Somebody said um, long ago, told me, don't look at it as problems, look at them as challenges. When you have the Comcast come to fix your internet and then you show up on Sunday and the internet doesn't work, that's a challenge. When they're supposed to fix the AC in the kids' room on Wednesday and Thursday and they don't show up and then we show up on Sunday and the AC in the kids' room isn't working, that's a challenge. <laughs> John was just telling me, we're going to blame it on the devil. I was like, that's a good call, John. We'll, call, we'll blame it on the devil. God's a God of victory. So, hey, we're going to talk about David. David is king in Israel. And this is a good thing. He's 40. He's around 40 years old. So can you imagine being given a promise by God at 16 and it comes to pass at 40? Yeah. It took him 20 years to sit upon the throne. It took another seven or eight years to unify everything that God had for him. He got the position after 20 years, so he's about 36, and then it took him about another five to seven years to unify it. But you know what the good word of that is, is that the Lord always keeps his promises. That's right. He's not slack concerning his promises, the Bible says. He'll keep them. The issue with us is, is that it's always, we think it's on our timetable. It's not on our timetable, it's on his. God lives in timelessness. And so it's like when he answers, he answers in eternity in a moment. But when God's answer is translated into time, there's usually a gap, don't you know? And so with David, God gave, put a promise over David. David had to go through a process. How many knows when you believe God for great things, he's going to put you through a process? It's true. Jesus, when the, they came to say, Lord, can we sit at your right hand? The Lord said, can you drink of the cup? And it wasn't the issue. The issue was never position. It's never an issue to ask Jesus for big things. Never. Not once does he ever correct somebody for believing him for something great. Not one time. Genesis to Revelation, you will never see someone step forward and say, Lord, I'm believing you for great things. Prayer of Jabez, bless me indeed. He does this whole thing, you know, he bless me indeed. Make my cord, make the length in the, 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 my uh, territory, make me great, make me influential, he asked. Let me not cause pain. The Lord didn't go, how dare you ask me that? Anybody who ever asked God for something great, the Lord never turned them away. But what he challenges us with is process. Like he said to James and John, can you drink of the cup? Are you willing to go through the process? We have to get a kingdom mindset and not a worldly cultural mindset. The world says you get it tomorrow. Big problem with our generation is a lot of our young people don't believe it. They believe if they're not millionaires by the time they're 30, they're failures. It's true. Because you see Mark Zuckerberg, you know, and Instagram, everybody, you know, all this crazy stuff. It's like, oh, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind. Anybody ever feel that way? I'm behind. I got good news for you. <laughs> 7.4 billion people on the planet. You live in the United States. You are not in last place. Oh, I'm serious. I don't care. You are not in last place. The game is long. You got time. Get in the game and make it happen. We have to be willing to go through the process. If God has given you a promise, 
There is a, he will fulfill the promise. For some of you, a lot of you, God's put a promise over your life for a very long time. It is better for you to receive the promise on the back end than it is on the front. You don't know how many pastors I've watched over the years receive great blessing on the front end, and they had never developed a character to hold it. And they get into their 30s and their 40s, and the character, when, when character is demanded of them, they don't have it. And ultimately, they collapse, or the ministry itself collapses. And some of the most successful people that I've ever seen have been those who've been given success on the backside of their life. Because they've gone through life, they've experienced life, they're more humble, they're not egotistical, and they're able to hold the weight that's put on them. And they're able to have a different perspective. So the kingdom says, God, it's better to take it on the backside. That's God's way. It's better to go through the process and receive the inheritance on the backside. So David is, in, David is on the throne of Israel. One of the first things David does, this is true leadership here, he modernizes the nation. Big story behind this. He'll, he takes a nation that's basically backwater and he brings them into the modern age. And one of the things that he does is he creates iron workers in the nation. There was no worker of iron in the nation before David took the throne. Israel was always at a disadvantage. So David brings in, and all of a sudden now, you're gonna, if you read that story, you're going to see that they had swords, they had spears, they had axes, they had you know, uh, all kinds of metal, metal objects that they didn't have before. David modernized the, modernized the culture. That's something the church has to learn from. David used the tools of the culture to further the kingdom. We have to learn to use the tools of the culture to further the kingdom. Use what's available to us. Facebook's not the enemy. Facebook's your friend. Every modern technology, every modern advancement is not given for the welfare of man. That's a side benefit. Modern advancement, I'm going to tell you, is given for the, for the advancement of the gospel. That's the only reason why we have an internet. That's the only reason why we've had cable TV. That's the only reason why we've been allowed satellite technology. And you say, no, humans benefit from that in a lot of ways. Yeah, they do. But the reason that that knowledge has come into the world and the purpose of that knowledge is to advance the gospel. And the church has to see this as tools to reach the culture. We have to modernize our thinking. I don't know who this is for. But yeah, it's true. So you know, if you think, that, if you think Instagram's the enemy and you think that Facebook's the enemy, it's not going away. It's not going away. Go through the shopping mall, and you're going to see five-year-olds on the cart scrolling through iPads. There, you ever see these little kids that whip through an iPad? I'm like, man, this kid knows more. I mean, I'm like, here, here, show me what to do. Oh, yeah. It's not going away. The attention is always going to be on that screen. It's not leaving us. And so we can either get mad about it and say, oh, there's a problem, there's a problem, or we can leverage it and say that's where we need to go. If that's where the attention is, then that's where we need to go. And some of you, you need, to, you need to update your profile and let it not be so much about your vanity, but you need to begin to find a way to bring the gospel into that world and be a missionary. Some of, we're called to be missionaries. The easy, it's like Jesus has made this so simple. You can be a digital missionary. You can literally propagate the gospel through social media, and you never even have to open your mouth. It's true. We have to see things differently. David modernized the country. He's living in a house of cedar, so it's imported wood. Cedar's a very important thing because in Israel they didn't have a lot of building materials, and so they, David's in a house of cedar, which tells us that he's, a, he's in finer things. He's gone from a cave to a palace, and not just a palace, but a palace that's made with imported wood. He's looking around and he says, hey, I want to build the Lord a house. 
Why am I living in this amazing house and God is struggling to live in a tent? We got Jesus out in a tent out here on the hill in Gibeon and, you know, and, and I'm living in this house made out of cedar. And so he tells it to the prophet and the prophet goes, great idea, David, go for it. And so Nathan, who is the prophet, goes home and at night the Lord goes, uh, I didn't re that's really not my idea, Nathan. And I'll tell you why, but if you want to contrast David's attitude towards the attitude of the people a couple of generations later, when in the book of Habakkuk, the people have been in bondage and been in captivity, and, and they're brought back into the promised land, and God allows them to return to the promised land, hello, and they begin to prosper. And in their prosperity, they forget the Lord. They're not concerned about Jesus. They're not concerned about Jesus' work. And the Lord actually has to send him a prophet. And he says, why do you dwell in paneled houses and the doors of my house are not hung? Consider your ways. Why do you just throw all the trappings of luxury around yourself? And why is it all about you and you have no consideration for me? Jesus doesn't have a problem with finer things. He didn't have a problem with you prospering. He didn't have a problem with you being blessed. That's the whole idea. Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed not for vanity's sake, but blessed to bring the gospel into the world. Deuteronomy 8.18, God's given you the power to get wealth. Did you know that? Every Christian has a supernatural anointing on their life to get wealth. But wealth for what reason? Okay? The Lord has given you the power to get wealth so that he may establish his covenant in the land. God wants to bless his people in order to give into his purposes to establish them in the earth. That's the point. I, I, I don't have time to talk about that, but nonetheless, that's truth. So you say, well, what's wealth? I don't know. What's wealth to you? Sometimes it's, a, some people, sometimes it's just, I want a piece of my home, I want this, I want that, and I want to have this, and I want to have this kind of quality of life. That's fine. Others of you, you want to be world changers. You want to shake the nations. You want to be known in the earth. That, that's fine, too. Some of you, you just say, I just want my little pasture on the side. I want a good family. I want to you know, be able to go to the soccer games. I, you know, I want my bills paid, and I want to be able to serve and give into the kingdom. Fine. That's wealth to you. Wealth is, wealth is a relative understanding to the person that's there. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I know I'm really butchering this because I don't have time to develop it. Some of you are like, looking at me like, what is this? Is this a prosperity gospel? It is a prosperity gospel. The gospel is a gospel of prosperity, Christian. Poverty is a curse. Is a curse. The only thing, poverty is not romantic to anyone that's in poverty. We romanticize poverty. Why don't you go ask the people that are in poverty and ask them how romantic poverty is? It's not romantic. Usually the people that are romanticizing poverty are some well-to-do Christians that just come in there and want to serve and do a little thing and then leave. Go live in the poverty. Go, live in the, go know when you can't get your lights paid. Go and see when you can't get food on your table. Go and know when you can't get gas in your car. And you go tell me how romantic it is. It's a curse. It's a curse. So Jesus was poor. He became poor so that you may become rich. Every aspect of the curse, Jesus took upon him. Do you understand that? He, didn't, he did it to break it off of you. He didn't do it to give it to you. He did it to free you from it. <laughs> it's true. We don't romanticize. We don't romanticize wealth, and we don't romanticize poverty. We romanticize the kingdom. We romanticize Jesus. Poverty's a curse. Make no mistake. Poverty's not of God. Make no mistake. You know what the Bible says of the devil? 
he makes his territory a wasteland. Where the devil is, there is poverty. Where the devil is, there is want. Where the devil is, it is a wasteland. That's his habitation. And let's contrast that with the Lord. Where's Jesus? Streets of gold? A, a sea of diamonds? Walls of jasper? Gates of pearls? That doesn't sound like a wasteland to me. It doesn't sound like he's wanting anything. Which world are you a part of? Our problem is narcissism. We can't see past ourselves. So we think money's all about us. Who told you that? It's all about me. No, it's all about me. No, it's about him. Him. It's about his glory, his purposes, his kingdom, period. David wants to honor God. He consults the prophet. The prophet gets spoken to by the Lord. The Lord goes, Nathan, not my idea. He said, I don't build. Here's the deal. The Lord says, my glory does not rest on human creation. He just said it last week when they built the ox. David's like, why, why couldn't we carry the ark? Because the ark does not, the ark represents the glory, and the glory of God does not dwell on what you create. The glory, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You didn't create you. The glory inhabits what God creates. The glory will go where God creates. And so what it means is, if you create something with the Lord, the glory's there. If you create something without the Lord, and you expect Him to put His glory on it, the odds are He's not going to do it. And what do we, we create relationships, and we go, bless this relationship, Lord. Put your glory on it. Look what I've made. I've made a business. I've made this. I've made that. I've done all these things. Put your glory on it. He doesn't do that that way. He doesn't do it without you. He does it with you. And you can't do it without him. So if you want the glory of God, it is in partnership with him. And he doesn't put his glory on things that you make. And that's what he's telling David. I, my, I'm, you know, you're going to build me a house? You, you know, I'm not putting my glory there. And he tells David, eventually, I will allow my house, a house to be built, but I, the, the point needs to be made that my, my glory does not rest upon human creation. David offers prayer and praise. He blesses, he honors God, begins to tell him, David, you won't build a house, but your son will build my house. He tells him in 1 Chronicles, so 1 Chronicles 18 through 22, so we're going to do 2 Samuel 7 through 9, I'm going to go Mach 5. These, three, these, these books run parallel. He tells him in the book of Chronicles, he says, David, you can't build my house because there's too much blood on your hands. And if you build my house, then the nations will look at the house that David built and they will see me as a violent and bloody God. They will see me as a God of conquest and not a God of peace. And he said, so my, your son will build the house. And so Solomon, who never fought a battle ever, Solomon Sloshim, his Hebrew, if you want to get down on that, is Sloshim. How'd you like to name your kid Sloshim? That's what Solomon means in Hebrew. Sloshim. Come over here, Sloshim. What? Anyway. Solomon never fought a battle. Solomon had peace all of his life, and Solomon built the temple. What's the reflection? God is a God of peace. God is a God of blessing. God is a God of covenant. God's not a God of war and violence and, you know. David executed. David, you're going to see David goes on a rampage. He takes the throne of his kingdom and he goes on a rampage and he literally subdues all of the nations under his rule. But God wouldn't allow him to build the house because he had blood on his hands. But he said, your son will build it. And the good news is, is David got a chance to put all the material together. So David negotiates all the contracts. David draws up all the plans. He just couldn't build it. The Bible says that David made silver as water. Oh, that's poverty to me. I don't know. I mean, David made silver as water. They said the timber that David collected was just way more than what they needed. 
Next slide. So God said, you can't build it, David. You got too much blood on your hands. I'll let your son build it. But David built the plans. He brought, built it all up, and he went there. He goes on a rampage after he takes his kingdom. He subdues the nations. And here's the deal. Ready? This is, again, a mindset, Christian. When God gave him victory, he took the spoils without hesitation. When God gives you victory, take the spoils without hesitation. Don't you cry when your harvest comes. I'm serious. Some of you believe God for years. Years you believe God. Blood, sweat, tears, prayer, crying, everything, sacrifice, and all of a sudden the Lord gives you what you've asked Him for, and you kind of go, okay, well, I'm not really, you know, take it. <laughs> without, thank you. Thank you very much. That's what I want. He Take it without hesitation. Take what he, when you have victory, don't, don't, you know, man, celebrate it. Celebrate it. Don't just celebrate the touchdowns, celebrate the first downs. He dedicates his victory to the Lord. He didn't take it to himself. He didn't say, oh, I'm so amazing. He dedicated it to the Lord. There's a little passage here. If I've got time to develop it, I don't. So I'm going to jump over it. So if you want to know about the priesthood of David's sons, I'll talk about it next week, next service. God gives him victory on all sides. So David goes on a rampage. He subdues all the kingdoms around him. And then he decides to do something. He decides to take a census of all of the fighting men. Next slide. What it tells us in Chronicles is that Satan rose up against David. And David decided to take a census. Well, that's a weird thing, right? The devil's going to rise up against you. He's not going to, you know, that, you know, Satan rose up against David and, and inspired David to take a census. Well, huh? Well, what's the deal with that? He stirred him up. Well, he stirred him up because what David is, is David's in success. And so now the devil is tempting him with what? Pride and ego. Pride and ego always accompany success, people. And so David is like, he's just won all these victories. He's just brought everybody into subjection. And he goes, you know what? I want to number my army. I want to know just how powerful, ready? I am. And there's the flaw. Pride and ego come with success. And what David was missing is it's not what you have, David. Everybody say this with me. It's not what I have. It's who I have. It's not what you have. It's who you have. If you knew the gift of God that was sitting in front of you, he told the woman at the well. If you knew who was here, if you knew who you had, if you knew the one that was before you, if you really knew me, you would ask. <laughs> Do you know him? Do you know the one that you have? Do you the one know the one who's bought you? Do you know his goodness, his kindness, his mercy? Do you know his extravagance? Do you know his abundance? Do you know it? Don't tell me you do and you don't ask. Don't you dare tell me you know who he is and you've asked him for nothing. If you tell me you ask God for nothing, I'll tell you you don't know him. My question is always, what do you believe in God for? What are you asking him for? Because if you knew me, he said, you would ask. And this, he was saying that to a woman who was broken, who was shot out, who had done nothing but make mistakes in her life. This wasn't some saint of glory showing up. This wasn't Sarah, Abraham's wife, coming to him. Oh, it's Saint Sarah. You know, ask me, Sarah. This was a broken woman who had nothing in and of herself. And Jesus looks at the broken, shot out, messed up woman, and he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me. Do you know who he is, Christian? Why don't you ask him? 
just having this conversation with my son. This is an ongoing thing. I tell my son, you need to ask the Lord. And the, the point is, you don't ask the Lord. You know why we don't ask the Lord? You ready? There's a lot of reasons, but I'm going to give you a big one. You don't know what you want. You don't ask Jesus because you don't know what you want. Plain and simple. You won't do the journey into your own heart. You won't wrestle through the things of your desires, your wants, your, your, your hopes, your dreams, your destiny. You won't journey there so you have no clue what you want. And because you know what you don't know what you want, you don't ask him. And you know what you get when you don't ask him? Zero. Zero. We don't ask him because we don't know what we want. We don't ask him because we believe a lie. We believe that he's not good. Or we believe that he's not generous. Lies. Or we believe we're not worthy. Lies. You're partnering with a lie. You're in covenant with a lie. Oh, I wish I had time. I don't. <laughs> Just stir you all up. Like, <laughs> Is that getting me going? Oh, man. Come on, man. <laughs> So David numbers, and numbers the people. The problem wasn't the census. God allowed them to have a census. The problem was that David did the census the way he wanted. He told Moses in Exodus that they could number the people. It was allowed. But David did it the way he wanted. David did a selective census. He was only going to number the fighting men. God said, no, if you're going to census, number the whole people. And not just number all the people. Every person has to pay a half shekel of silver. You mean I had to pay money if I was in God's house and I had to be and they were going to take a census? I had to pay a half shekel of silver. Yes, you did. How much is that? Ten days' wages. Why? Do you know why? Because it costs something to be numbered among God's people. Where you sit is not a trivial position, Christian. We take it so for granted. Do you know where you sit? Do you know the price that was paid for you to sit and have and be who you are? Even if you don't understand it, the very position that you hold as being a son or a daughter before him costs an extravagant price. It costs something to be numbered among God's people. That's what he's trying to drill into their head. You want to be among my people? Awesome. It's going to cost you something. Not just a half shekel per household, a half shekel per person, including the children. So you... Your wife and all three of your kids all had to pay a half shekel to be numbered among God's people. That's 50 days wages. <gasps> God would never do that. He, he, would never, he would never make such a demand. You're dang right he would. And here's the deal. Man didn't get to set the price. Jesus set the price. And you know what it was? It was 10 days wages. What's that? There's the principle of the 10th again. There's the tithe one more time. He sets the standard, we don't. He sets the standard of what is acceptable to him, not we don't. He sets the standard of what righteousness is to him, we don't. We don't. And so when we come before the Lord, you know what he's going to ask you? What wage do you bring to be numbered among our pe my people? You will stand before Jesus, and you will have to bear forth. Silver is righteousness. You're going to have to bring righteousness. Whose are you bringing? Whose payment are you carrying? Yours? Good luck. We bring forth the payment of Christ. More than a half shekel. Ten is also not just the number of testing, it's the number of infinity. The price that Jesus paid is an infinite price. And so we bring forth the righteousness of God in infinity. And the price is be paid. 
and you will be numbered among his people. But if you deny Jesus and you think you're going to make it on your own, you will not. Because your standard is not acceptable. God will not accept your standard of what's right. He will not. Well, I'm going to debate. You won't debate anything, man. Who are you kidding? When, the, when it talks about judgment, the Bible gives us a clear picture of the judgment throne. The Bema throne, the reward, woo, party, oons, 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 oons. I don't know if it's like disco lights, that's why it's a, a rainbow throne. And the prophets couldn't understand that it's like a disco going on there. And Jesus is like, what's up? Come on in. Enjoy the Lord. But the judgment throne is the white throne. You know what the Bible says? Silence before the Lord. Nobody speaks anything but me. You won't open your mouth. These unbelievers, they want to cock off and they want to say this stuff. They don't believe in Jesus. Good luck. Oh, I'm going to get there, and if it is that way, then I'm going to negotiate. You won't. You won't. You won't for pass go. You won't collect $200. You will be thrown into hell. You will be eternally outcast. God would never do that. You don't know him. God would never send anyone to hell. If you read the text, he's not sending them. He's throwing them. I'm serious. They were thrown into the lake of fire. He's not sending them. You've rejected me? You rejected so great a price? You treat my blood as a common thing? You treat my name as something among everyone else? You think I'm equal with Buddha? You think I'm equal with, with Krishna? You think I'm equal with you? You treat me like that? Gehenna, lake of fire, throw them. Sobering, sobering. We don't teach this in our modern churches, but that is exactly what the Bible says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what it's relating to is without Christ. It is a fearful thing. It's not something to be looked forward to at all. You don't have Jesus, man, you're lost. Hopeless and helpless. But if you have him, son and daughter, then live up to the standard of your identity. Stop playing games. Stop being like everybody else. Be who you are. And be who he's called you to be. Try to smile, just pull the pressure valve a little bit. <laughs> Lord sets the price we don't. A great price has been paid. Aren't you glad? Amen. Aren't you glad? Amen. What a great price. We need to value it. You know one of the things when you come to church on Sunday, you know what you're telling Jesus? I value the price. I value the price that you paid for me to be numbered among your people. I am glad to be here and to be numbered among your people. I value the price. When you're habit, I'm just going to put it on you. and Because you, you need to correct you. Nobody can correct you but you. When you put it on yourself to where you kind of, eh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You don't really value what's been given to you. You really don't. Jesus values you being here. You say, well, I don't know why. It doesn't matter if you know why. He wants you here. And so if he wants me here, then I'm here. It's that simple. It doesn't matter what I think. Well, you don't know what I give up. I don't what you give up? They didn't give up 10 days' wages. We'll have to give up a day's wages. We'll make it 10, and then we're going to be equal to what they had to give up to be numbered among the people. Next slide. David asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? I'm going to finish it here. So David's on the throne. Saul was, his, was the predecessor to David's throne. He, Saul's gone. Saul was a very wicked man. Saul had pursued David for 20 years. Can you imagine? 20 years this guy's after you. 
20 years, he's taken your house, he's taken your reputation, he's taken your money, he's used the resources of society to oppress you, he's used everything that he has to literally destroy you. He's gone, you're on the throne, and David wants to show kindness to his house. Would you do that? I'm not quite sure that would be my idea. <laughs> and David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I could show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was his friend. Jonathan was Saul's son. And Ziba comes to him and says, Jonathan, a servant named Ziba, comes to him and says, Jonathan has a son named Mephibosheth. And he's living in, the, he's living in a house, this specific, specific house, in a region called, everybody say it with me, Lodabar. Right. Mephibosheth is a son, uh, grandson of Saul, Jonathan's son. He's lame in both feet. He was young and he was dropped when he was a baby. He can't walk. He can't take care of himself. The word Lodabar means no word. It also means no pasture. So here we have an interesting perspective, and this is a type of Christ, and it's a relationship to Christ with man. Man was, man was born to be king. Mephibosheth was born to be king. You're born to rule. But we were dropped at birth. Do you know that? Sinned right out of the gate. Broken in both feet. Can't take care of ourselves. You think you can take care of yourself? Good luck. You really can. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Good news, Christian. You don't have to, Jesus is going to take care of you. All you got to do is partner with him. You don't have to do all the heavy lifting. He'll do it for you. And he'll do it with you. Mephibosheth dropped in both feet, broken in both feet, living in a place called Lodabar, which means no word and no pasture. So could it be, Christian, that where there's no word in our life, there's no pasture? Where there's no word in our life, there's no growth? Just could be. This is the mirror that God is trying to show us. You say, why does God put all this stuff in mysteries in his word? Because he wants to know if you want to look for it. He hides the gold in plain sight. And we just want, we want to be lazy and just let him tell us everything. God, Bible says it's the glory of God to conceal the matter. It's the glory of princes to seek it out. God conceals it, and he puts a glory on you and challenges you to find the depth of his word or find the depth within his word. Mephibosheth, is a, you can layer this out in a lot of ways, but a real simple one is to layer it out as Adam. So here's David on the throne. He's in power. Jesus on the throne. He looks at Adam. Adam was considered God's friend. So he says, is there anyone left of the house of Adam that I may show kindness to? And you say, yeah, all of us, man. We're lame in both feet. We're living in a place of no pasture and no word. And he calls Mephibosheth to him. Mephibosheth is afraid. So he comes before David, and he's literally freaking out. Because when you assumed leadership, when a king died and another king came onto the throne, that king would kill everybody's family. So they wouldn't leave anybody else alive because you were considered a threat to their rule. You were of the old house, and so they would literally kill you all. Anybody. If you were related to the former king, you were dead, flat out. It's over. <laughs> and so Mephibosheth, what do you think he's thinking? I've been hiding for 20 years in Lodabar, and he's finally found me, and he's going to kill me. And he comes before David, and David offers him kindness. So I want you to mirror this with Jesus. Okay, so here's David, type of Christ. Here's Mephibosheth, a type of us. He calls us to himself. A lot of people, when Jesus calls them, we think that he's going to judge us. We think that God is calling us to himself to judge us. If somebody says, well, God wants to get me. If he wanted to get you, he'd already have you. Let's just be clear. It's true. He's calling to himself that he may show you kindness. And he, wants to, he calls Mephibosheth to him, and he says, Mephibosheth, I want to show you kindness. And what does he do? He restores everything to him. He gives him back his land. He gives him back title. He gives him back position. And he gives him rulership. And what he tells him, and he also gives him position, authority, and provision. 
But that position, authority, and provision was not his. It was he was to rule in the king's name. You get the picture? So we're given back provision, we're given back authority, and we're given provision, position, provision, and authority. But we don't rule in our name. We rule in his name. And so we're called to his table. And we have a seat at the king's table. Lodabar is also in a house, and the guy whose house he was in, his name was Barter. That was the, what his name meant. Barter. Or make agreement. When you make your own agreements and you try to do it your way, you're always going to be shortchanged. So David left the house of Barter, and he went to the king's table, and he took up the king's offer. And he was given a restored position, authority, and provision. So let me just lay this out here, and we'll close right here. If you're here this morning, and you don't know that you're saved, you say, I don't even know what that word saved means. You don't know that you're born again. You know that you're lost. You feel like I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I, I, don't, I don't know where, what to do. The Bible says if you will believe God, if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he was risen from the dead, the Bible says Jesus will save you. The Bible also tells us that if we will open the door of our heart, he, by his spirit, will come and he will live inside of us. The Bible tells us that he's going to wash away all of your sin, your guilt, and your shame. And you say, how is that possible? Supernaturally, Christian. He does it by his spirit. And so I'm just going to give you an opportunity here. God is like, like David. He's calling you from this place of no pasture. He's calling you from this place of no word. He's calling you to sit at the table with him. The question isn't whether or not Jesus is calling. The question is, is will you respond to the invitation? And so we're going to pray. Just like a marriage, you get married with words and a trade. You give your heart, you give your words, and it happens. Jesus is going to take you at your word, and he's going to take you at your heart. And so I'm going to do a prayer, and everybody's going to pray with us, and you just pray with us. If you want Jesus, and you want to know that you're born again, you want to know that you're forgiven, you want to know that you have eternal life, you want to go before the party throne, not the white throne. This is your moment right now, not tomorrow. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, not next week, not next year, now, right now. This is your moment. And so let's just pray together. Let's just say this. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to heal me, forgive me, repurpose my life, and restore. All that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me bless you one more time. Just receive the blessing. If you gave your life to Christ today and this is the first time you ever did it, come find me. I'd love to talk to you. And let me just put a blessing over you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may he be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. And when I